In this interview, Dr. Joseph Kalis, Ambulatory Oncology Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the University of Colorado Health, speaks with i3Health and the Pharmacy Podcast Network to share an exclusive preview of the recent CPE activity that he developed with i3Health, aligning treatment goals and value-based care in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. After the interview, stay tuned to hear the full presentation from Dr. Kalis and his co-chair, Dr. Eric Cannon, Chief Pharmacy Benefits Officer at Select Health, and visit i3health.com to claim free CPE credit for this activity. Pharmacy Podcast Network had an amazing opportunity to get together with i3health. Uh, you can find more information about this organization empowering pharmacists and healthcare professionals through education, mobile education today. As you're listening, if you're driving in your car, you're jogging, walking your dog, um, make sure you take a look at i3health.com um, after today's podcast. Excited. We have a returning guest that we're going to be talking with as lead on today's subject. Um, but first, I just wanted to tell you, i3health's mission is to enhance the proficiency in multiple disciplinary health care teams by providing evidence-based, fair and balanced approved activities that address, identify the professional's practice gaps and unmet educational needs. And we love leveraging podcasts and mobile education to this. We know how busy you are. We know how uh, crazy life can get. So if you consume some, um, some CE uh, through podcasting, i3health is a source of education. And today we're really celebrating um, a series of podcasts that i3health has developed around multiple myeloma and the one and only Dr. Joseph uh, Kalis is back. And it's great to have um, Joe back. Um, and I wanna introduce uh, Joe again to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you, Todd. Pleasure to be back again and to, to speak with you both. And I'm not driving today's bus, Joe. We have a host today that I'm excited to introduce to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Uh, Kara Smith um, has been with uh, i3Health for some time, and she's helped to craft um, this series. And I'm excited to have her here. Kara, welcome to the PPN. Thanks so much, Todd and Joe. It's great to talk with you both today. So we have a serious subject that continues to morph into the next stage of treatment through multiple myeloma. Um, Kara, I'm excited that you're um, that you're hosting today's conversation with Dr. Kalis. Um, I'm going to turn it over to you and let the two of you uh, take us and our listeners um, into this uh, presentation. Great, thanks so much. Um, yeah, so at I3Health, we're really excited about this CPE activity uh, that was launched recently that Dr. Kalis chaired. Um, so Joe, going back to the background for this activity, what is the need for pharmacy education surrounding multiple myeloma? And what are the educational gaps that uh, you, as well as other pharmacists, tend to encounter in your practice? Those are some great questions, Kira. So very glad that you posed them to me. I, I'd say that the need for pharmacy education in multiple myeloma really starts off, I think, with a good understanding of just what the disease state is. You know, as a as a student and then as a resident and now in practice for 10 plus years, it's it's something that I've grown in familiarity with over time and over working with patients and exposure to the disease. But I think the word Todd used just a few moments ago about things morphing is a great way to think about multiple myeloma. Really what it is, we've got a, a disorder of the 
fully mature or permanently differentiated B cells, and the ones that make antibodies for our immune system. And, and in myeloma, what's happening is that, you know, the genetic instructions have gone awry, something's faulty, where antibodies being made are no longer functional. You might have pieces or parts of an antibody. And I think once, once a learner, be it a pharmacist, student, you know, educated member of the public who might be listening in today, that's something that I think really informs the treatments we're using and why we see some of the signs and symptoms we do. But for me, coming back to kind of the core of what's happening and why it's happening really helps to organize and centralize some of the treatments that we're using. I'd say as far as educational gaps go, I'm gonna come back to that term morphic. Save myself a little bit, you know, the mighty Morphin Power Rangers, you know, something that I was familiar with growing up. But it's such a rapidly evolving landscape of treatments. And it seems every month we have new drugs or new indications approved from the FDA, or we're using new combinations. But say the educational gaps have really just been being able to keep up with everything and also to keep that information organized in a certain way so that you can kind of pull it up at a moment. Definitely, I agree. Things are just changing so fast. Um, just recently at the at the ASH meeting, um, and it seemed like almost every presentation is about, you know, a new a new target and multiple myeloma. So it's really exciting to see. <laughs> um, yeah, it so definitely is. Like I've done some other programs and a fair bit of other, you know, educational opportunities with things like targeting BCMA or other drug targets. And I think just as time goes on, we're going to see more and more agents, more targets discovered and, and taken advantage of for treatment. And I think there's a lot still to come in multiple myeloma and something I'm personally very excited about. Definitely. It's super exciting. Um, so how does this activity help uh, to address some of these ed educational gaps as well as, you know, cover the rapidly evolving fields? Yeah, I, I'd say the, the activity in question here through I3 Health it really did a nice job putting together some of that foundational knowledge for pharmacists and listeners about what is multiple myeloma, what are some of our options for initial treatment, both in the transplant eligible patients and those who are ineligible for transplant. Like you've got a, a plethora of, of options out there. I guess plethora is my $10 word for the day. But knowing which options to use when and then what patients are eligible for which options is something I think this activity really did quite nicely. Um, so as far as all of these, you know, these latest advances, especially the ones that have, have come out most recently, what were the ones that you think are the most applicable to practice that you're personally most excited about? Yeah, some of it, I think, starting first and foremost, you know, first-line therapy, we've got the, the tried and true regimen, VRD, so bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone. But the addition of, of other classes of agents to that, you know, one that we talked a bit about in the activity was aritumumab, so an, an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. And, and I find that that agent or combinations with that class of agents pretty darn exciting because of their ability to increase overall response rates, but also to increase the depth of response. And it's something we'll, we'll focus a little bit on in the activity, but just you know, trying to achieve minimal residual disease. I think a term some of our listeners will be more familiar with in like leukemia or lymphoma or other hematologic disorder spaces. I think it's really starting to come into the prime time in myeloma. 
if we can get a great response or a very deep response in somebody's early stages of treatment, I think that pretends very, very well for how their future treatments and sequences might go. Definitely. Um, as far as what's coming down the pipeline, um, what are you looking forward to seeing in the next few years or so? <laughs> that, that That's a, a very loaded question, and, and I appreciate that. You know, you think back to like grandpa's double barrel 12 gauge, but if I'm going to stick with that 12 gauge analogy, you've got one side that's the CAR T cells. So we've got some commercially available CAR T cells right now that are targeting agents, or targeting targets rather, such as BCMA. And some very exciting and encouraging data from those agents come out now. I think a lot more to be learned about how to best utilize those drugs. You know, are we saving it for fourth, fifth, sixth line therapy in our relapsed patients? There's some ongoing trials that I'm, I'm following pretty closely looking at using CAR T cells earlier in treatment, first line, second line. But if, you know, can we come back to that shotgun analogy, you go back to the other barrel, we've got bispecific antibodies. So offering us the opportunity to take an off-the-shelf drug, and we're not, you know, re-engineering a patient's own cells, we have an off-the-shelf product that can be utilized rather quickly, but targeting some of the same things. So BCMA with teclistamab. And there's other agents out there. Talketamab is one that comes to mind with BCPR5D as a target. But I think it'll be very interesting to see just how these agents are sequenced. We've got some, we're starting to get some more mature data emerging for how to use them, what the results are, what we're seeing in terms of symptoms and side effects, things like cytokine release syndrome or different neurologic toxicities. You know, can you use one and then the other? What will we combine them with? That's a big thing I think we've all seen in myeloma. One drug is good, let's try three or four with different mechanisms of action and see where that gets us. A lot still to come. Definitely. Um, I guess to pivot a little bit, um, so in the activity, uh, you cover treatment advances in multiple myeloma, and the other aspect of it um, was the managed care provider perspective that mm -hmm. Dr. Cannon shared his, his insights on. Um, is there anything about this, this other perspective that you see in your practice that you'd like to maybe talk about? Oh, definitely, definitely, because it's something that I think in pharmacy we're uniquely positioned to not only ensure that the right drugs are reaching the right patient at the right time, and that old tried and true cliche, but it still stands because it's so accurate. But I, I think in today's landscape, we've also taken on more of a role in making sure that the agents we're using are among some of the more cost-effective. You know, we've got a, a very complex landscape of payers, whether it's private insurances or government programs, other things. You know, one thing that my institution's focusing a lot on is, you know, how are we getting reimbursed for these? And, and as we talk about some of these exciting advances in myeloma, so daratumumab, isotuximab, clistamab, CAR T cells, and others, one of the questions we're getting a lot from administrators is, well, you've got some really high price tags on these drugs, Joe. How do we know we're going to get reimbursed? Or what are the criteria we need to focus on? Are we following guideline or labeling indications? It's one of my favorite things to teach students is you start with the on-label stuff in oncology, and then it very quickly becomes off-label as the science advances until the labels and regulatory aspects catch up. But you know, I, I've seen some numbers in the literature for CAR T cells, looking at around $400,000, $500,000 for the drug. And then you have to add the cost of hospitalization 
supportive agents such as tocilizumab in there. We're seeing many of these same questions come up with the bispecific antibodies. So I think it's it's very apropos for pharmacists to stay involved, even just peripherally, with some of the the costs associated with our therapies and managed care. We can achieve similar outcomes with a less expensive agent and have patients reach the same endpoint. Maybe we need to be taking a closer look at that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, all right, I guess, Todd, I will turn it over back to you. I like the fact that I3 Health has built out this two-part module. Um, Joe, you've led it along with um, with Dr. Cannon in really discussing this for our pharmacists to access. We're going to have links in our show notes driving people to um, the place where you can actually take this course um, in understanding aligning treatment goals in value-based care and newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Um, Joe, it is always amazing and great to listen to you and learn from you. Um, you've helped uh, so many other pharmacists really advance their knowledge and create curiosity um, in order to dig in. And, you know, that's the domino effect. I want to see pharmacists empowering pharmacists to push further in order to get this data back to our physicians, our, our researchers, and really to, to adjust treatment along the way to, like we all said, when things morph, we want to stay ahead of it. And I think pharmacists are the key. So I'm a fan, as you know, Joe, and I hope to have you back in, in future podcasts. And we're so excited about I3 Health and uh, Kira, we have to have you back as well. So I wanted to thank you both. Yeah, thank you, Todd. It was a pleasure to be here. I'd like to thank all those folks out there in the past who kind of set me on this course or helped me come up with some of the analogies. Robert Mancini, Ryan Zimmerly, you're out there. <laughs> I'll see you guys when I see you. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you to the I3 Health team for helping us put this together. Um, be on the lookout for our, our promotion of this, um, of this um, educational event, and we will be promoting this um, throughout all of our social media. And if you have ideas for future um, education through podcasting, maybe you'd like to participate in what you're passionate about, please reach out to Kira and the I3 Health team. Um, you can go to i3health.com. Once again, that's i3health.com. Pharmacists, you are our heroes. Thank you for everything that you're doing for patients out there who are suffering with, um, with serious chronic diseases. And we look to you uh, to bring us um, future education. So we thank you. Thank you for listening to this exclusive interview. Now, stay tuned to hear the full presentation from Dr. Kalos and his co-chair, Dr. Eric Cannon, and visit i3health.com to claim free CPE credit for this activity. Welcome to the i3health podcast where we explore the latest advances in medical research and treatment. I am Katie Cook from i3Health. Treatment planning for individual patients with multiple myeloma is complicated by numerous factors. Clinicians are challenged with leveraging the best available evidence and meeting individual care needs in diverse patient populations across different settings. This episode of the i3Health podcast will focus on aligning treatment goals and value-based care in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. It features perspectives from two noted experts in the field. Joseph A. Callis, PharmD, BCOP, 
Ambulatory Oncology Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the University of Colorado Health, and Eric Cannon, PharmD, FAMCP, Chief Pharmacy Benefits Officer at Select Health. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Sanofi and supported by an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. For those wishing to receive free CPE credit, please visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen MM hyphen treatment to complete the activity assessments and evaluation. You may also wish to revisit the content in the monograph. Access the downloadable infographic to further your self-study and obtain further information, including faculty disclosures. Thank you all for joining us in today's discussion of aligning treatment goals and value-based care in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Uh, my name is Joe Kalis. I'm an ambulatory oncology pharmacist with the UC Health System here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm joined today by Dr. Eric Cannon, but I'll have him introduce himself as we get to his portion of the presentation a little bit later on. Today's objectives are really to review and assess guideline recommended treatments and combinations and how we sequence various drugs for newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients. Uh, we'll take a closer look at the mechanism of action and then some efficacy and safety data for anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies in this treatment setting. And then really wrap up by going over some strategies for developing both evidence and value-based care plans for these patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. All right, so a bit of background as we get started. I often find it helpful to kind of set the table, so to speak, to give us all a starting point from the same page. Now, multiple myeloma is unfortunately a currently incurable malignancy that's characterized by uncontrolled proliferation of the plasma cells. And really what, we, what I mean by that here is just these terminally differentiated plasma cells that are able to produce antibodies or immunoglobulins, or in the case of multiple myeloma, pieces and parts of antibodies, so ones that are not fully functional. And these pieces and parts of antibodies, as we think about them, often get classified through the term M-protein, which will be secreted by the cells into the blood and then ultimately into the urine. So most of our monitoring will come through lab tests involving blood and urine. But if allowed to progress and to continue, we can ultimately end up with associated end organ dysfunctions of the kidneys, bone marrow, et cetera, in these patients. Now, prevalence of multiple myeloma in 2021 through some American Cancer Society data, now there is an estimated new diagnoses of over 35,000 cases and then over 12,000 deaths, <clears throat> working out to be a lifetime risk for any of us of one in 132 or 0.76% if you'd like to be precise. Similar to what we see in other cancer types, uh, the median age at diagnosis for multiple myeloma patients is approximately 69 years. Uh, but fortunately for us clinicians, there are some precursor states that we can hopefully identify and then monitor if we've got that opportunity. Um, so monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance or MGUS which then in turn may progress to smoldering multiple myeloma, or SMM. 
Longer-term outcomes in multiple myeloma have fortunately been advancing over the past few decades and have really led to improved survival for our patients with multiple myeloma. Um, A retrospective review that was done in the year 2020 of 1,000 patients who were treated with standard first-line therapy of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone for induction, um, regimens also known by the initials RVD, and then followed by risk-adapted maintenance therapy, really found that our entire cohort of patients had a median progression-free survival of 65 months. But there were some differences based on those patients' cytogenetics. Now, if a patient had standard risk cytogenetics, median PFS was at 76.5 months. But if unfortunately they had high-risk cytogenetics, the progression-free survival did drop down to 40.3 months. So still some differences to account for in treatment for our patients. Um, Again, for the entire cohort, our median overall survival was at 126.6 months. We did see some differences there with median overall survival of 78.2 months for high-risk patients, but fortunately not reached for our standard risk patients. So we're still seeing some differences based on patient cytogenetics. Looking at kind of longer-term overall survival rates, five-year overall survival rates for high-risk patients were 57%, and then even longer at 81% for our standard risk patients. Again, as we go out to 10-year overall survival, high-risk patients had a 10-year overall survival of 29%. Standard risk patients had a 10-year overall survival of 58%. It's certainly an exciting time to be treating patients with multiple myeloma. We're seeing new agents and new mechanisms of action coming available and pushing that needle of long-term survival ever forward. So the question will often come up, you know, how do we diagnose someone with multiple myeloma? You know, what signs and symptoms are we looking for? One of the best ways I've come across to help keep this information straight is by using an, an acronym. So C-R-A-B or CRAB for short. The C is going to denote calcium. And in multiple myeloma patients, we're really concerned with hypercalcemia. Um, we'll need to use the function of corrected calcium or correcting for hypoalbuminemia. If available at your institution, ionized calcium is often a better or more straightforward assessment. So if you have access to ionized calcium, a typical normal range will be 4.4 to 5.4 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, if using corrected calcium, we're looking for something generally above 11 milligrams per deciliter. But symptoms that a patient may report do include constipation or confusion. Now, the R in our CRAB acronym does denote renal dysfunction. So different definitions could be a serum creatinine greater than 2 or creatinine clearance less than 40 milliliters per minute. But in anywhere from 15 to 40% of cases, we are encountering nephropathy. And the most common cause for this nephropathy is really tubular damage from those monoclonal light chain proteins, otherwise known as the M proteins we mentioned shortly ago. But these these monoclonal light chain proteins can really lead to tubular casts or interstitial nephritis and then contribute to that overall renal dysfunction. So that'll be the C and R of our CRAB acronym. Uh, The A denotes anemia. 
which again, in most cases is typically normal acidic anemia. So hemoglobin less than 10 grams per deciliter or even two grams per deciliter below the lower limit of normal at your institution. And again, this is due to multiple myeloma's involvement with the bone marrow, but also a, an inadequate responsiveness of erythropoietin, again, as part of the function of myeloma. Symptoms that a patient may complain of or note can include fatigue, weakness, or even shortness of breath, depending on the severity of anemia. Um, last but not least, the B in our CRAB acronym denotes any bone or bony symptoms. So one of those hallmarks of multiple myeloma is bony disease with you know, up to 80% of patients presenting with some manifestation of bony disease. You know, <clears throat> up to 30% can present with even a pathologic fracture. So these could show up as you know, one or more osteolytic lesions on skeletal radiography or other imaging. But again, as we'd said, could include pathologic fractures, severe osteopenia, Patients may be noting or complaining of symptoms of bone pain, those um, constipation or confusion noted with hypercalcemia. Again, in rare or severe cases, could even progress to things such as spinal cord compression. And, and what's happening on a, a biologic basis with multiple myeloma is that those cells are really secreting various interleukins that are involved in regulation of the bone and calcium homeostasis. So interleukin-6, interleukin-1, even things like a soluble IL-6 receptor. But my takeaway from this is really all of these various interleukins and receptors results in increased function of the osteoclasts, so those cells that are breaking up the calcium in bone, and decreased function of osteoblasts, which are the ones that I think of as building bone or laying things down. Um, one common analogy I'll use with, with my patients or learners is the idea of an asphalt paver is the osteoblast putting down new roadway or new bone. And then you've got the opposite machine, which chews up older roadways or the osteoclasts. So recycling that older bone. So we've gone through the symptoms of multiple myeloma. Now, your typical diagnostic workup at initial presentation of the disease is fairly broad. You know, it can include things, including um, a CBC and differential on blood work. We should also be evaluating a comprehensive metabolic panel to look at renal function, um, LDH or lactate dehydrogenase, but also beta-2 microglobulin as part of the overall workup and staging, as we'll see shortly. Um, do need to review a urinalysis and then a serum protein electrophoresis or SPEP with immunofixation to really evaluate that M protein or monoclonal protein spike can determine what type of immunoglobulin it is. Bone marrow biopsy is included to evaluate the bone marrow and then extent of disease involvement from myeloma in the marrow. But there should also be some form of imaging, such as a CT or PET CT scan or even an MRI to detect bone involvement. Now that's our workup, but to make an official diagnosis of multiple myeloma, we're looking for a combination of greater than or equal to 10% of clonal bone marrow plasma cells, or our multiple myeloma cells, plus one or more of what's termed a myeloma-defining event. So any of those CRAB symptoms we had just reviewed, so hypercalcemia, renal dysfunction, anemia, 
bony disease or bone pain. But then also bone marrow clonal plasma cytosis greater than or equal to 60%, a free light chain ratio greater than 100 milligrams per liter. So again, looking at those kappa and lambda light chains or greater than one focal lesion on imaging. So some various criteria that'll need to be met before a patient could be formally diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So to, to officially get a better handle on our patient's disease and kind of what, what risk it has for them, the International Myeloma Working Group, or IMWG, published a revised risk stratification in 2015. So it's accounting for the previous staging of the international staging system, but taking into account both cytogenetics and then a patient's disease burden as measured by LDH or lactate dehydrogenase. And this is this RISS is considered to be more effective as it is a corrected approach that does include those genetic factors. So for a patient to have stage one multiple myeloma, generally we'll be looking to see if they've got a serum beta-2 microglobulin less than 3.5 milligrams per liter and a serum albumin greater than 3.5 milligrams, but also no high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities by FISH and then a normal serum LDH. So we've got a stage one multiple myeloma patient. We're looking at a five-year progression-free survival of approximately 55%, five-year overall survival of approximately 82%. Now, I'm going to jump ahead to stage three to kind of make the rest of the staging make sense. So we've kind of gone our, our standard risk patients at stage one. But for a stage three patient, really what we're looking for is a serum beta-2 microglobulin greater than 5.5 milligrams per liter, and then high-risk chromosomal abnormalities, such as deletion 17P, translocation 414 or translocation 1416 by fish, or an elevated lactate dehydrogenase. And, and by contrast to the data we had just reviewed, for these stage three patients, a five-year progression-free survival is unfortunately only 24%, five-year overall survival of 40%. So you might be asking, well, Joe, you know, what about stage two? And, and my answer there is the definition for stage two multiple myeloma through in the IMWG criteria is something that's neither stage one nor stage three. So we need to have an understanding of both those other stages before we can classify someone as stage two. But as, as you might have expected, those patients with stage two multiple myeloma do have survival data in between the other two stages. So a five-year progression-free survival of 36% and then a five-year overall survival of 62%. So, all right, we've identified a patient's symptoms, we have made that diagnosis of multiple myeloma, we've assessed what risk disease someone might have. How do we tell or how do we classify if a patient is responding to treatment? So the International Myeloma Working Group, again, IMWG, has laid out some response categories, ranging from the, the best response we can hope for, a stringent, complete response, then ranging down to complete response, very good partial response, partial response. And then on the opposite end of our spectrum, we have things such as no change or stable disease, progressive disease, and then disease relapse. 
And what all of these response categories take into account is the level of serum and urine M protein. So again, that monoclonal protein spike can measure it as free light chains. And then also some of the other increases that may account for progressive disease. But for those specifics, I'll refer you back onto the IMWG criteria and invite you to try and apply those to one of your patients to get a better handle on them and how those criteria are used. A key thing for us to keep in mind as we treat these patients is that treating multiple myeloma is truly a marathon and not a sprint. So as we look at the medications and combination regimens that are available, you know, some of the strategic or tactical considerations that come into play are really that both the efficacy and tolerability of the drug regimens really comes into play here. Because as we look at a patient's course of myeloma, as we had said, they may start with MGUS or smoldering myeloma as a precursor state, will be treated for their symptomatic myeloma, may go into remission for a period of time. But after that initial relapse or initial disease progression, those windows of remission and treatment response, unfortunately, do get shorter and shorter. So we've always been on the lookout for new mechanisms of action, new drugs with different targets to really provide the best and most effective treatment for our patients with multiple myeloma. Now, as we had said at the outset, multiple myeloma does unfortunately remain incurable, but as our treatment paradigm evolves, we're working those novel agents and combinations into both the frontline and relapsed settings to improve both the depth of a patient's response so perhaps taking them from a very good partial response to a complete response. The science is still evolving, but even now is including concepts such as depth of remission, so minimal residual disease is something you'll be seeing more and more of, but also the duration of responses. So the longer we can have a patient respond in later course disease, the better overall. All right, so let's now take a look at the treatment approaches for a newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patient. Our treatment algorithm, if, if this sounds akin to what you may have seen in acute leukemias or other leukemias, you're certainly on the right track. Uh, we'll term induction therapy as the first or primary line of treatment a patient receives. If that has achieved a response, patients will then progress on to consolidation treatment. Now, which in certain patients could be a stem cell transplant if the patient's eligible or a continuation of their initial therapy. After that consolidation phase is completed, a patient then becomes eligible to go on to maintenance therapy. And then, of course, if there's a treatment relapse along that progression, rescue with what will be termed salvage therapy. So our treatment approaches... And for our newly diagnosed patients, looking at induction therapy, um, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network or NCCN multiple myeloma clinical practice guidelines do prefer what's termed a triplet regimen over a doublet. So essentially using three drugs with differing mechanisms of action over two, but also the consideration for including monoclonal antibodies directed at um, CD38. So such as daratumumab or isotuximab that we'll review shortly. But even when a patient's in that induction course of therapy, we really should be evaluating them and considering their eligibility for a stem cell transplant. 
So in our patients who are eligible for stem cell transplant, that's generally going to be a melphalan-based autologous transplant, can be done early, either early, so immediately after they've achieved remission from induction therapy, or it could be delayed at the time of their first relapse after induction therapy. Following consolidation treatment, as I'd said, we move on to maintenance therapy, generally with a single or even two agents together, could be agents ranging from lenalidomide to bortezomib or ixazomib, or even a combination of those agents mentioned above, depending on the patient's cytogenetics and then overall tolerability of their prior treatment. So we've mentioned a little bit about stem cell transplants and patients that may or may not be eligible. So what is that eligibility criteria really composed of? Now, there's a couple of key pillars here that we will look at. So organ function will be our first. So if patients have cirrhosis, that is a certain contraindication to a patient receiving you know, higher dose or myeloablative chemotherapy, such as melphalan. We also need to consider if they have a New York Heart Association functional status class three or class four heart failure. Essentially, we need to know that their organs are both functional and healthy enough to withstand the rigors and then recovery period after a transplant has been performed. Speaking of performance, patients also do need to have a good performance status. So the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group or ECOG performance statuses of three or four would be a contraindication to a patient receiving a transplant. One of the pillars that has fallen under some question of late is a patient's age. Now, at some centers, ages greater than 77 could be a contraindication, but here in the United States, there's not a strict age limit that is used when evaluating a patient for transplant. So here at my centers at UC Health, decisions for transplant are made on a case-by-case -case basis, and then that concept of physiologic age. So sure, a patient's chronologic age may be 77, but what's their organ function like? What's their performance status like? All of those factors are taken into consideration. And then our fourth and, and final pillar that we'll look at for stem cell transplant eligibility criteria is an avoidance of myelotoxic treatments leading up to the transplant. And, and really what we're looking for here are agents that could impair or impede the collection of the CD34 positive stem cells that are needed for a transplant to be successful. So this includes agents such as melphalan, bendamustine, or even the continuation of immunomodulatory agents such as lenalidomide for greater than four cycles before stem cells were collected. All right, let's shift gears somewhat over into the anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies. So we mentioned a few moments ago that these agents could be included and worked into a patient's induction therapy. But let's discover a little bit about what these drugs are, how they're working, and why they may have moved earlier on in the treatment algorithm for our newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients. So anti-CD38 is overexpressed in multiple myeloma cells. So it does provide a very attractive target because the inhibition of CD38 really contributes to the effectiveness of these agents that are being used here. Now, interestingly enough, CD38 is also expressed on subsets of regulatory T cells, B cells, and then even monocytes. 
which is important because these are or can be highly immunosuppressive cells. So if we inhibit them by targeting and removing these cellular subsets, there's less kind of innate immunosuppression that's happening. And we'll see a greater anti-myeloma response through expansion and activation of the patient's own T cells. So the anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies in practice now are generally human immunoglobulin CD38-directed monoclonal antibodies. And where they have been included in the algorithm for newly diagnosed multiple myeloma therapy in transplant-eligible patients is, of course, going to be in combination with one of those doublet or even triplet regimens that we mentioned earlier. So noted the, the VRD or ortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone is one of the NCCN category one preferred recommendations for a newly diagnosed myeloma patient who's eligible for transplant. Where daratumumab or even isatuximab could be worked into that algorithm is often, say, for patients who are needing a deeper response or for those perhaps from the outset of treatment if they've got high-risk cytogenetics. So looking ahead in a patient's course of treatment to the relapsed refractory multiple myeloma setting, considering agent daratumumab specifically, we do have several trials that give us a sense of where and how to deploy this agent. So the initial trial of daratumumab was serious, looked at single agent daratumumab in patients who'd had three or more prior lines of therapy. By itself, what this study showed is that alone or in monotherapy, daratumumab did res result in a response rate of 29%, which considering the heavily pretreated patient population and those who'd had relapsed or refractory disease was fairly remarkable at the time. Um, the science has since advanced to studying the inclusion of daratumumab with our other agents such as lenalidomide or bortezomib. Um, the Pollock study looked at daratumumab, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone versus lenalidomide and dexamethasone and found that the group with daratumumab did have an overall response rate of 92.9% versus approximately 76% in the group that did not include it. The Castor study looked at the inclusion of daratumumab along with bortezomib and dexamethasone but again showed a overall response rate of nearly 83% in the daratumumab arm versus 63% in the arm without it. But more importantly, as we're looking at that marathon of treatment for these patients, we are seeing that the combinations are still fairly tolerable. And some of our key toxicities do include bone marrow suppression, so things like anemia, neutropenia, or even thrombocytopenia. But fortunately for clinicians and patients, these are all symptoms and side effects that we've got well within our wheelhouse to manage and to prevent as much as possible. Now, again, looking further on in treatment and in different combinations with daratumumab in that relapsed or refractory setting, um, there are some studies such as Apollo that looked at the inclusion of daratumumab to pomalidomide and dexamethasone as well as the CANDER trial looking at daratumumab with carfilzomib and dexamethasone. And we're seeing a continuation of that trend of increased overall response rates with similar toxicities such as neutropenia and leukopenia. The Apollo study did notice an increased rate of pneumonia, so 13% in the daratumumab arm versus 7% in the comparator. 
but something that again could be accounted for as well with the inherent immunosuppression and then chronic steroid use in our patients. But something to bear monitoring if you're using those combinations. Now, the Cassiopeia trial did look at daratumumab plus bortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone versus bortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone, kind of looking at patients that were newly diagnosed and were transplant eligible. So again, meeting those criteria for transplant that we had reviewed before. Patients would go through induction cycles and then some consolidation post-transplant. But our primary endpoint is really looking at stringent complete response 100 days after transplant. Another trial looking at the newly diagnosed multiple myeloma space and the role of daratumumab um, is the Griffin study. And this one's particularly interesting for us here in the United States because it looks at the addition of daratumumab to, again, often the first line or what could be considered a gold standard regimen of RVD, so again, lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. With those things having been said, let's shift over a little bit to some of those results. You know, what data have we seen from Cassiopeia and the Griffin studies in our transplant-eligible, newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patient population? So with Cassiopeia, again, keep in mind this is daratumumab or tezumab, but with thalidomide, whereas Griffin is daratumumab, bortezomib, but lenalidomide. So again, perhaps a little bit more reflective of current practice. In the Cassiopeia study, we saw an increased overall response rate of 92.6% in the daratumumab arm versus 89.9% in the group without. We did have a statistically significant increase in the very good partial response rate as well as an increase in MRD negativity. And as we've mentioned previously, the, the concept of minimal residual disease or MRD negativity is something that's, I think, coming of age in the myeloma space because it's a good marker of really how much disease or how much myeloma could be left after treatment. Let's take a closer look at some of the data from the Griffin study. Our overall response rate in the arm with daratumumab was 99% versus 91.8% in the group without. But also, we did see a very good partial response rate of nearly 91% in the daratumumab arm versus 73% in the non-daratumumab arm. So a difference that was statistically significant, as well as nearly a 30% increase in MRD negativity with the daratumumab arm. So we've got some strong data to at least consider the inclusion of daratumumab in our newly diagnosed transplant-eligible myeloma patients. Now, we've spoken so far of daratumumab, but let's also consider isatuximab. So it's another CD38-directed monoclonal antibody. The key clinical difference for us is that it's binding to a different epitope on the cell surface antigen of CD38. Um, this drug has been studied in both the Icaria and Ikemus trials looking at the combination of isatuximab, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone in Icaria, and then isatuximab, carfilzomib, and dexamethasone in Ikemo. Our key takeaways from these trials are that really the data is primarily in relapsed refractory myeloma patients. We do see increases in overall response rate and very good partial response rate in the groups receiving isatuximab. But with the incidence of higher risk for respiratory tract infections in those patients receiving esetuximab, um, there's no data 
currently for use of esotuximab in patients who have previously received daratumumab. But for comparison's sake, there is perhaps less infusion time with esotuximab versus IV daratumumab. Having reviewed the inclusion of the anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies into treatment, and also some of the supporting study data, now let's take a look at the supportive care that can be considered or needed for these agents. One of the key things to consider with the use of daratumumab is the incidence of an infusion reaction or an allergic type of reaction that can occur during the infusion or patient's treatment. This is most prevalent with the initial infusion. So up to 48% of patients receiving intravenous daratumumab will report some degree of infusion-related reaction the first dose. And then up to 11% of patients receiving subcutaneous daratumumab also reports an infusion-related reaction. Now, these reactions are primarily respiratory in nature, but it is worth noting that delayed infusion reactions can occur up to 48 hours after an infusion. So certainly a monitoring point or counseling point for patients to keep an eye on at home. Now, there are recommended pre-medications and post-medications. Now, the pre-medications for daratumumab do include a corticosteroid, and this can vary from methylprednisone to dexamethasone, depending on whether daratumumab is being used as monotherapy or in a combination. An antipyretic, such as acetaminophen, along with an antihistamine, such as diphenhydramine. But looking at the post-infusion setting, our recommendations are to include a corticosteroid for two doses the day after treatment. So generally here is methylprednisolone based on whether it's monotherapy or combination. Um, but it's worth noting the potential role of other medications to help manage and prevent these infusion reactions. And Montelukast here in particular. Now, the reason that Montelukast does have a role in this setting is that our CD38 target is expressed on upper airway smooth muscle cells. So the inclusion of Montelukast as a pre-medication was shown to reduce the incidence of daratumumab infusion reactions via the IV route of administration from 45% to 27%. So certainly a clinical pearl worth evaluating at your institutions. By contrast, esotuximab also does have infusion reactions reported, but has an incidence of 39% on that initial dose. Premedications are very similar, including histamine, antagonists, acetaminophen, corticosteroids. Questionable role for Montelukast use with esotuximab versus daratumumab. And then also with esotuximab, delayed infusion reactions have not been noted. So some contrasting points to keep in mind when you're treating patients with both of these CD38-directed monoclonal antibodies. Another supportive care key to keep in mind is that CD38 is present on red blood cells. So when a patient has received an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, there is the risk for interference with serologic testing. Really, why this comes to play and is important in our patients is that they may be anemic and may have a need for transfusions to be administered. So we'll need to know patient's blood type, screen for any inhibitors, et cetera. 
So the binding of daratumumab and isatuximab causes actual pan-reactivity in vitro, which may result in false positive results on the indirect antiglobulin test and generally otherwise interfere with antibody screening and cross-matching. So there's no effect on the typing of the blood, but it's worth noting that this effect can last up to six months following the last dose of a CD38 inhibitor. So currently recommended best practices are to obtain both a baseline type and screen, along with a molecular phenotype prior to the start of treatment with one of these agents. At my institution, we have a process to notify our institutional blood bank whenever a new patient starts therapy with an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. In the event that something does happen where these blood tests are not done, the, the interference can be overcome using dithryl-3-adol or DTT methods within the lab, but certainly a situation where an ounce of prevention is considered better than, than a pound of cure if you're able to do it. Myelosuppression is another supportive care point worth evaluating. So daratumumab, as we'd mentioned earlier, has been associated with anemia, as has isatuximab. With daratumumab specifically, you know, the decreases in hemoglobin can be anywhere you know, approximately 1.6 grams per deciliter. And this is due to the clearance of those CD38 tagged red blood cells within the spleen. But in clinic practice, you'll see a compensatory increase in the reticulocytes. Bottom line here is that growth factor support and then even blood or platelet transfusions may be required. Um, in an indirect comparison, we do see higher rates of anemia and then thrombocytopenia with isotuximab versus daratumumab. And then also perhaps slightly increased rates of neutropenia, but certainly still within the same ballpark at 96% versus 92%. So with the myelosuppression in mind, the question often arises, is there a need for infection prophylaxis? On the bacterial front with agents such as levofloxacin, there is some study data that support the inclusion of levofloxacin once per day for the initial 12 weeks of induction therapy. While this did increase the time to the first febrile episode, Unfortunately, there was no significant difference in overall survival shown at a median follow-up of one year, but there was also no increase in healthcare-associated infections that was noted at a 16-week follow-up. So it's an option that does exist if there is a need for a specific patient. Now, on that same vein of infection prophylaxis, there may be a need for herpes zoster prevention, so with agents such as acyclovir. This should actually be initiated one week prior to treatment and then continued until at least two months post-treatment. This is typically done with proteasome inhibitor or antibody-based regimens. So those including daratumumab, isatuximab, bortezomib, carfilzomib, and others. But also keep in mind the need for pneumocystis urovecchi pneumonia prophylaxis or even antifungal prophylaxis if high-dose or prolonged steroids are part of the regimen. And our definition of high-dose steroids here from the NCCN guidelines for prevention and treatment of cancer-related infections is 20 milligrams of prednisone or an equivalent daily for over four weeks. So certainly an area of consideration given the larger doses of dexamethasone used in our myeloma patients. Along that same line of infection prophylaxis, there's also considerations for the use of intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG 
Uh, patients who have recurrent infections and an IgG level of less than 400 milligrams per deciliter or even secondary hypogammaglobulinemia should be considered to receive IVIG. Daratumumab does have a role for hepatitis B reactivation, so certainly something to be monitoring or screening for prior to initiation of therapy. But then also vaccinations in our patients, such as the annual influenza vaccine, a pneumococcal conjugate, such as PCV13 and PPV23. But if a patient's had a bone marrow transplant, there'll be a role for post-transplant vaccines, and then also to um, vaccination against COVID-19. All right, so newly diagnosed multiple myeloma therapy for transplant ineligible patients. Many of our same regimens are preferred, but we do see daratumumab move into the category one or preferred regimen setting here. So combinations such as bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, or the RVD regimen we've mentioned previously, but also the combination of daratumumab, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. So we do see here a strong consideration for the frontline use of daratumumab in our transplant and eligible patients. Now, some of our data for this comes from the Alcyone study. So looking at daratumumab, bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. Keep in mind here that melphalan can be utilized in this setting because the patients are considered to be transplant ineligible. But here we are comparing the VMP regimen with the addition of daratumumab versus without daratumumab. The Maya trial also did take a look at this transplant and eligible patient setting. So comparing lenalidomide and dexamethasone versus daratumumab, lenalidomide and dexamethasone. So as we compare data from the Alcyone and Maya trials, what we're seeing here is that the addition of daratumumab to both the VMP regimen and lenalidomide and dexamethasone did result in an increased median progression-free survival, an increased overall response rate, and then also an increase in the percentage of very good partial response. But also of note, the addition of daratumumab did increase the rates of MRD negativity. So again, thinking here, we've got a deeper response through the addition of daratumumab which in turn can be anticipated to produce a more durable or longer lasting response. All right. So as we begin to wrap up my initial section before we transition things over to Dr. Cannon, I did want to highlight some of the general principles that will influence a patient's treatment. So some of the factors that will go into determining what agents a patient receives and of what combinations can be used. So a couple categories here that we'll consider. Um, frailty will be our first. So what is the patient's age? What is their performance status based on the ECOG scale? Are there any disabilities? But then also what comorbidities do they have? Do those comorbidities overlap with the anticipated side effects of the agents we're proposing we use? Disease morbidity is our second category. So is the patient's disease refractory? What is their rate of progression? How long did their last remission last? Is there any renal impairment? Because that again can affect the doses of lenalidomide and other agents. And then do they have any bony disease? Are they at risk for a pathologic fracture or even hypercalcemia? Our risk assessment, so again, using the ISS method and then cytogenetics comes into play. 
as does treatment history. So there are a plethora of agents to be used in treatment of multiple myeloma. So we do need to consider what previous or prior therapies a patient has received. So say, for instance, if a patient was initially treated with lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, upon progression, we could consider a regimen such as lenalidomide, carfilzomib, and dexamethasone. But we also should not overlook the impact of a patient's lifestyle. So what is their preference for therapies? Do they prefer IV or subcutaneous injections or oral tablets? Are their caregivers able to access these medications and then assist the patient? What is the burden of travel or even infusion time for a patient? You know, how far do they live from a treatment center? And then also the cost and insurance coverage for the medications and combinations, and then also the supportive care medicines that are involved. So after considering those things, it becomes a little bit clearer why maintenance therapy for our stem cell transplant candidates is a bit simplified. The NCCN recommendations for category one or preferred regimens do include lenalidomide, other combinations are useful in certain circumstances, but that's, again, going to be a patient-specific determination. So key takeaways from our initial section and review of anti-CD38 antibodies, multiple myeloma, and then treatment options and newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Um, keep in mind, multiple myeloma is a diverse and heterogeneous disease. We've got many treatment options available. The addition of anti-CD38 therapy to myeloma treatment regimens has really led to positive impacts in overall survival, deepening response rates, and then increased MRD negativity. But then I think most importantly, pharmacists play a key role in optimizing multiple myeloma therapy, and then we can also play a very large role in optimizing the supportive care of patients with multiple myeloma. With that, I'd like to turn things over to Dr. Eric Cannon for the second portion of our presentation. Thanks, Dr. Callis. My name is uh, Eric Cannon. I'm Chief Pharmacy Officer with Select Health. Uh, Select Health is the pair arm uh, of Intermountain Healthcare in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, in my role, I, I find myself a lot of times finding ways, how do, how do we coordinate care across the integrated delivery system and how do we how do we do that in a way that provides value uh, for our clients and and more importantly for those members uh, and patients that we provide insurance with so I appreciated uh, dr callis's overview of multiple myeloma and and the review of, of the different treatments i'm going to go back to one of the slides that he used right at the beginning and, and i think it's important for us to, to realize the prevalence here that uh, annually, uh, there's an estimated almost 35,000 newly diagnosed patients with multiple myeloma, and annually, there, there's about 12,000 uh, deaths. And so, uh, this is a, a condition I think all of us probably throughout our lifetimes have known someone that, are, that has had multiple myeloma. Uh, again, looking at another one of, of the studies that Dr. Callis reviewed was just really talking about median survival. And I think uh, seeing where treatment has come over the recent years uh, is really important and that we can get a median progression-free survival uh, of 65 months. Uh, and then 
even an overall survival now pushing uh, a, a good five years. So uh, excited to see these treatments advance. Uh, and, you know, never thought we would, would see five-year survival rates that were uh, somewhere between 60 and 80%. So let's talk a little bit about the burden of disease. And uh, this is a trial that you know, I'm gonna talk about that was a prospective trial trying to quantify the burden of illness. They looked at transplant eligible, transplant non-eligible patients, and also the caregivers. They surveyed them uh, at months zero, three, and 12. Now, interesting to me over that 12 month period of time, both the patients and the caregivers reported that their overall health status and health-related quality of life remained fairly stable. Uh, the greatest cost driver for them were, were specialist visits and hospital admissions. If you look at that transplant non-eligible patient group, uh, they also had increased costs from home, adapt home adaptations. And, and so adapting their home to that better suit them uh, as they work through their illness. Uh, most of the patients felt like they lost some independence uh, to perform their daily activities. Uh, the mean pain intensity rose over the 12 month period of time and opioid utilization increased. One of the things that I, as we talk about different disease states we often forget are, are those people that provide care. And by month 12, half of the caregivers uh, in this in this study had developed stress, anxiety, or, or depression. And, and so often our focus is completely on the patient, but this also takes a toll on the people that are caring for people with the disease. Let's talk a little bit about the cost of the disease. Uh, and, and this is a study that looked at uh, patients that had had uh, triple class exposure or therapy. So Three, lines, or three different drugs in that therapy uh, and, and then initiated greater than one subsequent line of treatment. So what they found uh, was that their average post-index date uh, was about 21 months. In that period of time, 65% uh, of the patients had initiated a second line of therapy and just over 35% of the patients had received at least three lines of therapy. If we look at the total all-cause healthcare cost per patient, uh, so this would include all healthcare costs, not just multiple myeloma related, uh, that total all-cause healthcare cost was $722,000 or just under about $35,000 a month. If you break that down, and you look at just multiple myeloma, multiple, multiple myeloma accounted for 91% uh, of those total costs with even 66% of those costs being related to the drugs and the infusion costs uh, associated with treatment. As the disease progresses, uh, we do see people using more and more resources. Now this was a trial uh, that looked at the progression of the disease and associated costs. And it was done between 2006 and 2018. And 
for the purpose of today's discussion, I, I'm just going to focus on, on 2013 to 2018. That's still, you know, a ways back in time, but I think in terms of the results, they're proportional to what we would see happening uh, in today's market. So uh, the incremental cost for those patients that progressed, uh, that had one line of therapy was about $46,000. As a second line of therapy was added, uh, those costs approached $100,000 or just exceeded $100,000. And three lines of therapy was just about exactly the same. So uh, what we see is incrementally, as we add more therapies, and especially today, as we add more and more expensive therapies, incrementally, those costs are going to go up. So looking at some additional burdens and really asking the question, how does multiple myeloma compare with other cancer types? And so um, hospital admissions are three times higher uh, in multiple myeloma patients than in, in colon cancer patients, four and a half versus 1.4. Uh, and if you look at that treatment burden, and this is a separate trial, uh, what they found was that within the first year of treatment, uh, patients spent 77 days with a healthcare encounter or receiving a new prescription. And so uh, a good portion of, of these patients' time uh, is involved in, in their healthcare and, and receiving treatment for their disease. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the cost effectiveness of the drugs. And, and Dr. Callis did a good job talking about a lot of the treatments that we see and use uh, and uh, talking about their roles. And, and, and so I think it's interesting that, you know, one of his final slides looked at daratinumab and uh, ortezomib. If we look at those, those therapies that yield the highest expected life years, they were those treatments that involved daratinumab uh, and, and really 6.7 uh expected life years versus 3.25. Uh, if we break that down now and we look at what were uh, those most cost-effective regimens, panobisnestat, along with daratunumab, uh, kind of fell in that category of most cost-effective regimens. Uh, daratunumab uh, as second line and panobisnestat uh, as third line with incremental costs of $50,000. Uh, and then in terms of pharmacoeconomics, uh, you would say, uh, looking at the third line treatment here, that it was cost saving. That's uh, a little bit of a misnomer, I think, in terms of the fact that there still is significant cost associated with that, but cost saving in comparison uh, with alternative treatments. Uh, this is an evaluation uh, or literature review system, systematic review, uh, looking at economic evaluations uh, for the cost effectiveness of ortezomib, uh, thalidomide, and lenalidomide uh, containing regimens. And what they found as they did this literature review uh, was that the ortezomide 
therapies were more commonly selected. Uh, they were more effective, uh, but they were also more costly. Uh, and so while they were uh, selected more often and, and produced better results, they did cost more. And incrementally, uh, that was about $55,000 uh, per life year or uh, just over $68,000 per quality adjusted life year. Uh, when we look at this evaluation, I think, and I think it's interesting, uh, Batesimit definitely came out on top in the literature review here. This is a study that was done uh, probably six years ago. Uh, and, and so some of, some of that uh, measure is uh, not containing our most recent treatments. Uh, but the other issue was, and I think we've got these confounding factors that they really didn't have precision measurements in, in the trials in terms of what they were really looking at. Uh, there was no uh, evaluation of the heterogeneity of the trials. And um, there was a lot of variability in how the trials were conducted and how the trials were reported. Uh, although I think, I think it is important for us to take a look at, at this data. Uh, so if we look at the CD38 inhibitors, uh, and, and we've talked about daratunumab, Dr. Callis also talked about isatuximab, uh, and, and so this is looking at a comparison, really uh, two different regiments uh, with the main difference being daratunumab and isatuximab. Um, what they found uh, was that Isatuximab uh, had lower costs, uh, at least in the first year. Uh, as you went into the three-year model, uh, isatuximab uh, started to approach those costs of daratunumab. As you got into the three-year model, isatuximab uh, did end up being more expensive. Uh, there were some uh, very subtle differences uh, in life years and quality adjusted life years. Uh, and, and while numerically they did separate, uh, I'm not completely convinced that there's a lot of clinical significance uh, between those numbers. I, I'm going to change gears and, and move on from uh, talking about the cost effectiveness of the treatments uh, and, and talk about some of the perspectives that exist uh, with payers in the market. And back in the fall of 2021, the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy uh, convened a group of payers uh, that included uh, uh, representatives from pharmacy benefit management companies, uh, health insurers, uh, integrated delivery networks, uh, and several other organizations were represented around the table. Uh, they really talked about how they saw what was happening uh, in multiple myeloma and maybe how it impacted them. Uh, what they were seeing was that the current management approaches for multiple myeloma were variable uh, due to the recent innovations. And so uh, we're going to talk in a little bit here about the need to have more standardized uh, regiments. And, and I think for payers, that, that was concerning in that they were trying to provide payment for what they believe to be the most 
uh, cost-effective treatments and the most effective treatments for patients. Uh, yet, as more and more innovations come out, that becomes harder and harder. Uh, as patients move through uh, the different lines of therapy, uh, the payers felt that they needed more clarity around what is the appropriate sequencing of, of treatments in multiple myeloma. Uh, is there a standard that could be followed? Uh, one of the things that I think is really uh, positive is there was a lot of discussion in, in that group about the fact that payers, integrated delivery networks and employers are really innovating, working together uh, to find better ways of managing uh, multiple myeloma care. Uh, they highlighted the need uh, that as they innovate, they need collaborative partners and, and partners that can help ad address financial risk, but also improve access uh, for patients to care. Uh, total cost of care uh, was, was top of mind for the payers. And, and I think we've seen you know, just taking a high level look at, at the burden of the disease and the healthcare cost, uh, we can see why those costs would be of concern. And as innovative therapies come out, uh, the group really felt strongly they needed additional evidence uh, around those in terms of, of what their place is in therapy. And, and I think that's one of the things we all struggle with. Uh, we understand uh, in a, in a very controlled setting, uh, how the drug works and what the results are that one might achieve with it. Uh, but what what is the real world evidence in terms of where does it fit in clinical practice? Uh, these pairs also uh, identified some unmet needs. And, and I think it's important that uh, while they identified unmet needs, they also acknowledged uh, the great progress that's been made in, in treating multiple myeloma. Uh, and, and I think this could be said for just about any disease, but they were looking for a cure that didn't have any side effects. Uh, they believe that the treatment sequencing that we talked about earlier was still an unmet need. Uh, interestingly, they're not complaining about the cost of care but they want to have a greater understanding of what is going into the total cost of care and how that might be impacted. Uh, we talked a little bit about real world evidence and, and how do we sequence treatments. Uh, one of the things that I've always tried to focus on with my team is how do we identify the right, right patient uh, or the best regimen or the best treatment uh, and how do we make sure that they get that? How do we make for sure that it's affordable accessible, and, and it's also sustainable. Finally, one of the things that came out of this was uh, that the integrated delivery networks uh, are really innovating to better manage multiple myeloma. Uh, I see that within our own organization where early on we're seeking feedback uh, from those providers, those clinicians, uh, within the organization as we develop new policies and making sure that we are all seated around the table working towards a, a common goal of improving the care uh, for our patients. Uh, a lot of organizations now are really looking at the side of service of these different programs. Uh, how can they 
put care closer to the patients? How do they make care less disruptive in a patient's life? Uh, we're talking about biosimilars in a lot of disease states right now. I think biosimilars are a ways down the road uh, in terms of multiple myeloma, but that is something that people are thinking about. Uh, and as organizations, they're really working towards how do they educate their clinicians on, on those things that are optimal. One of the things that as we look at new models of care, as we look at, at, at value-based treatments and therapies, uh, we need collaborative partners uh, in that effort. And so uh, how do we look at alternative payment models that might spread the financial risk uh, and make treatment more accessible for more people. Uh, we've seen a lot of value-based contracting done uh, both within the pharmaceutical space, but also in terms of total treatment uh, with providers and, and how do we work together to drive towards the best outcomes. Uh, implementing any of these collaborative efforts, I think remains a challenge. Uh, determining how we're going to share risk uh, is a challenge, and, and people, though, I think are, are really getting a lot closer to that than, than we've ever been. Uh, how do we try other options, potentially, before going to the most expensive treatments? And then uh, one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit here going forward is how do, how do, we, how do we address the health inequities? How do we make sure that we've got access for underserved populations? Uh, and, and how do we help identify uh, nurses, pharmacists, others uh, that can improve care coordination and early on identify these inequities that exist within our patient populations? Uh, Brent James uh, was at Intermountain Healthcare for years and, and uh, spent a lot of time participating with the Institute of Medicine, uh, published an article back in, in 2011. And, and the real point of the article was to look not at a single disease state, but to look at different disease states and the overall value of having treatment guidelines and pathways. Uh, what they've identified over the years is that variation in treatment leads to poor outcomes, increased costs, and, and increased adverse events. Uh, you know, we talked about the fact that this can be in, in many disease states. Improvement comes as we decrease the variability in treatment. Uh, it allows for us to reduce the cost of medications. Uh, and I think importantly, it increases patient satisfaction, it improves clinical outcomes, and it reduces and eliminates medication errors and other, other adverse events for patients. So let's talk a little bit about the role uh, of the managed care pharmacist here. Uh, Dr. Callis has, has uh, done an exemplary job uh, demonstrating the role of a, of a clinical pharmacist in the, in the oncology setting. Uh, let's talk about that pharmacist now more in a managed care setting. Uh, we talked about programs that have been put within uh, integrated delivery networks. And so uh, this is looking at a collaborative multiple myeloma clinic uh, where we 
we're a board-certified oncology pharmacist, is working alongside a myeloma-focused hematologist. Uh, that clinical pharmacist provided medication-related education, uh, helped complete medication therapy management. Uh, the way this was built, the, the pharmacist monitored for adherence, uh, mannered, monitored for treatment-related toxicities, uh, but also helped in the management of the those toxicities and providing supportive care uh, on the basis of evidence guidelines. Uh, pharmacist was also there to help navigate issues of insurance approval or access to oral specialty medications. Uh, so what were the outcomes that they achieved? Uh, what they found was that the collaborative clinic an oncology-trained pharmacist alongside a hematologist uh, led to significant improvements in adherence to supportive medications. Uh, they saw more appropriate VTE prophylaxis. Uh, they saw better pneumonia pro prophylaxis in those transplant patients. Uh, and, and they saw significant improvement in the time to therapy for people that were going on oral immuno immunomodulator uh, drugs, uh, and, and a significant reduction there of almost a full week. I, I think it's exciting to see pharmacists taking a, a, a larger and larger role uh, in, in improving care and improving treatment for patients. Uh, let's talk just a little bit about the value of integration. And uh, this is one of those things that uh, we maintain uh, within our own organization. Uh, a, how do we meet the patient where they are? And so how do we effectively use the community pharmacies in our network? Uh, how do we make sure that if a patient needs delivery of medication, we're going to take care of that? Uh, how do we optimize the, the site of service for infusions or treatment? Uh, making sure that we're allowing patients to be engaged and adherent, but then also how do we incorporate incorporate uh, formulary management in our clinical program so that we can drive the best outcomes. This is my view uh, of the world as it relates to formulary. I, I think it also very much applies to our uh, drug use, drug utilization review process, uh, where if you look at our formulary designs today, uh, they're driven by class, uh, we're using coinsurance, copayment, step therapy, prior authorization, and other things to drive uh, control in, in, in these categories. We are making progress as we move towards more value-based insurance designs, uh, really working with our clinicians. And I think and the progress we've made in, in just those three or four years since we first looked at these things is significant. Uh, we have more and more value-based uh, designs available where we're really paying for what works and we're not paying for those things that doesn't work. Where the market really needs, and I think as we get more into uh, genomics, as we start looking at different biomarkers and genetic markers uh, for treatment, uh, we can eliminate step therapy. We can eliminate prior authorization. Uh, because we'll be using targeted therapies and targeted therapies that, that come with a companion diagnostic. So we're only using the drug 
if it's warranted and only uh, where it will work. Uh, that improves and makes it easier for us to look at reimbursement. It also, as we talk about accountable care models, uh, makes it easier for us to balance risk. So uh, again, what are some of those administrative burdens that, that we see in the market today? And again, uh, <laughs> this is my view, uh, although I think it, it's fairly consistent with uh, those of others and actually recently had a conversation with, with several advocacy groups and, and several physician groups. Uh, administrative barriers. Uh, how do we make sure that we're getting access to medications in a timely way? Uh, how do we make sure that if, if there is a prior authorization that's needed, that it's done in a way that doesn't delay uh, access to treatment for a particular patient? So as we look at timely prior authorization, within our organization, we're moving towards automation. Uh, we're moving towards more use of electronic prior authorization uh, so that we avoid all of those disruptions. Uh, cost is is always going to be a barrier. Uh, so how do we how do we take advantage of manufacturer assistance? How do we take advantage of other less expensive treatments so that we can reduce that cost and reduce that barrier to care? Uh, and then finally, uh, care coordination. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this continues to improve and and the more we see pharmacists embedded within care teams and, and we see, uh, accountable care organizations that are integrating with, with the payers. Uh, we are seeing improvement in, in how we manage the patients and, and the care management that's done, but also all of those benefits that we talked about that come from uh, clinically integrated teams. Uh, earlier, I'd mentioned that uh, we were going to talk about some of the barriers, and, and so this is some data that uh, published in, in, in two different trials, actually. Uh, but looking at the impact of race, uh, looking at the impact of insurance, and, and really looking at the, the impact of access to treatment. And so race, insurance, and, and other things definitely played an impact in, in treatment for patients. And so race and ethnicity and insurance were all associated with underuse of maintenance therapies, and there were more interruptions in treatment. Uh, how do we resolve this? And I think it's we're, we're making a lot of progress, but it, it comes back to how do organizations have appropriate policies to measure and, and also then prevent those disparities. Uh, if we look at multiple myeloma, uh, it's the leading hematologic condition in African-Americans. Uh, so how do we make sure that we put in place best practices that allow these patients to have access to centers of excellence? Uh, how do we make sure that they've got access to transplantation? Uh, how are we working with them to increase adherence to therapeutics? Are we working to put uh, minorities and other ethnicities into clinical trials so that we can have more robust information. Uh, and, and then really making sure that we've got programs in place uh, to reduce these cultural differences. Wanted to talk just for a minute about drug utilization review. 
I, I think every organization that I've been a part of does this a little differently. But at the end of the day, it comes down to some basic principles of the clinical data, uh, the economics of treatment, and then what are the impacts for the patient. Uh, this is a trial that was, or an article that was published back in 2011. Uh, it was not <laughs> published relative to multiple myeloma, but the principles are still correct and still apply. And so really making sure that as we review the treatments and the therapies that exist, how are we measuring efficacy? Uh, and not only is the treatment effective, but is it safe? Uh, looking at the economics and, and what are the total treatment costs? Many times we look at the single cost of an individual drug and we don't look at the total cost of care across the entire healthcare continuum. And then how do we use those economics and, and how do those economics impact appropriate utilization? And then finally, we need to look at, are there administrative burdens or barriers for the patients to getting care? And then how do we improve their overall adherence? Uh, as we work through different uh, drug utilization review uh, in, in different categories, uh, we're trying to bring together everything into one disease state rather than simply just looking at individual treatments. Uh, some of the critical issues that I think need to be re reviewed in the, in the DUR process are the potential for off-label use. And as we talk about oncology, uh, many times the research is proceeding much faster than uh, what may be an on or off-label use. And so, uh, maybe moving beyond just looking, is this an FDA labeled indication, but is there significant data to support its use? Uh, place and therapy, uh, talked a little bit about sequencing of treatments. How do we do that? How do we monitor our patients? Uh, what are the costs? What are the dosing regimens? And then are we seeing doses creep up uh, or are costs creeping up? Uh, and then finally, uh, what is the cost effectiveness? One of the things that is really challenging is the pace of innovation. And if you look at our DUR process within our organization, uh, each category maybe only runs through the DUR process every 18 months. And so with a rapid pace of innovation, uh, we're continually uh, trying to play catch up. Um, what are the opportunities? And I think the opportunities center around how do we improve the conduct of evidence? Uh, how do we make sure that we're disseminating, disseminating that early on? Uh, the more we engage stakeholders, the more we understand what we're actually seeing in the data and the more rich and valuable that information becomes. Uh, we've talked a lot about comparative trials today. Uh, more comparative trials are needed uh, as we continue to kind of improve uh, patient care. So uh, in review, uh, just kind of high level going over some of the things we talked about, uh, naturally costs are increasing with each subsequent line of treatment uh, and not just additive, but uh, as we move into additional treatments, they're significantly more expensive uh, each line of therapy. Uh, all cost treatment costs are over $700,000 per patient. Uh, hospital admissions for multiple myeloma are three times greater 
uh, than hospital admissions for colon cancer. Uh, talked about the fact, and I, and I think it's unique to see that uh, the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy brought together a group to talk specifically about multiple myeloma. And so clearly payers are recognizing that there are opportunities to collaborate and improve care. Uh, we continue to see guidelines and pathways uh, take hold and come out. Uh, we know pharmacists can absolutely impact care for the better. And then through the DUR process, additional opportunities can be identified. Uh, so thank you. And uh, that concludes my portion of the presentation. Thank you for listening to the I3 Health Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatment, all found at oncdata.com. For those wishing to receive free CPE credit, please visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen MM hyphen treatment to complete the activity assessments and evaluation. You may also wish to revisit the content in the monograph. Access the downloadable infographic to further your self-study and obtain further information, including faculty disclosures. While you're there, you can check out our other free oncology CME, NCPD, and CPE offerings at i3health.com. And don't forget to follow i3health on social media for free CME, NCPD, and CPE as well as news, exclusive interviews, and more.